The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, welcome to Scorebox this Thursday morning. Karen Cho, Arabile Gamede and myself, Steve Sedgwick. And some headlines. A breakthrough for the crypto industry as the SEC finally approves Bitcoin ETFs. 11 funds poised to start trading as soon as today in a move welcomed by ARK Invest President. This could have come much sooner. We watched it come in other markets around the world with a spot Bitcoin ETF much sooner. Uh, and yet at the same time, we're very excited to be able to finally bring the asset class in a way that's within the traditional system to so many more investors. U.S. equities close in the green, with the Dow posting its fourth positive session in five as Wall Street looks ahead to today's key inflation print. Asian stocks pick up on the positive sentiment with Hong Kong's Hang Seng leading the charge, while Japan's Nikkei breaks past 35,000 points for the first time since 1990. United and Alaska Airlines cancel more flights as Boeing 737 MAX 9 jets stay grounded, with the company's CEO telling CNBC in an exclusive interview that the investigation will prove instrumental. I'm confident that that process will not only uh, prevent accident, but maybe more importantly, the data we collect from each and every one of those inspections, the data we collect will inform all of the actions that we have to take as a company. And we'll get more insight into the health of the UK consumer in just under an hour with results due from Tesco, Marks & Spencer and Whitbread. We'll break the numbers as they cross the wires. Very good morning. How yes, are you? Good morning. Very well, thank you. Yeah, you. Are you excited about the Bitcoin ETFs? Well, this one really went according to plan, right? There seemed like well, there could the be some After the SEC didn't have its two-factor authentication sorted out, yes. <laughs> well, yeah, so we got the outcome expected and uh, what it means for the Bitcoin price, obviously the big question. Don't know yeah. what it means for the price. Haven't got a clue, never have known. But what I do know for a fact, and it's unarguable, is that there are going to be a vast amount of investors, retail investors, who are going to get bombarded with propositions, with marketing from a whole host of players saying, your product is going to be safer now, don't have to worry about hot wallets. And to a degree, there is truth in that as well. So the potential pool of investors, again, price, I've no idea, volume, I've no idea, but the potential pool of investors has just gone through the roof. Yeah, are we just uh, on the cusp of another meme stock type of event too. Don't forget the benefits here would be to see a lot of transactions taking place in Bitcoin in and out because the price is going up or down or whatever the movements are. The movement is good news for the ETF providers. It, it, so you could see the encouragement trying to get some activity in the marketplace. Um, maybe, maybe, yeah, this is where perhaps I might be slightly more disagreeable as ever. Uh, but I, I think I don't know what it means for price. Um, it probably is positive for volume. But for the ETF providers themselves, I don't know if this is a win in the short term. Bear, bear with me. I think over the medium to longer term, there are possibilities that it provides them with a font of great new business. Mm -hmm. But in the very short term, 
you, you mentioned it yourself. There is a fees war going on between them. They would have hoped for one and a half to two percent fees per transaction on the ETFs. And as it stands, there is a price war going on to take it down to the more of the mean level of ETF um, transaction fees, which is 0.25. Now, we're not there yet, but it could well happen. And some of the ETF providers are talking about a loss leader on the transactions in order to build up scale. Given the fact that, as I just mentioned, there is a vast amount of marketing costs and, and employee costs and you've got to build up a whole operation to cope with potential demand as well. When you've got higher costs, higher customer acquisition costs and a fees war going on, I think it's not a slam dunk that the providers will make a lot of money out of this. If you can scale quickly, you get past some if of those you can hurdles. Scale quickly. And what we've seen different. in the futures Bitcoin market, there can be immediate scale for some of the uh, the first movers. So even though we're talking about eleven uh, companies here, eleven different firms, that's still so not far. A, yeah so far that's not a huge amount really. So if they can get uh, these operations up and running very quickly, get the volume through, then it, it would be beneficial. But as you point out, longer term benefits. It's not always about one relationship with the customer that you're just going to offer them this Bitcoin product. The suite, yeah. I mean, I'm sure ARK Invest hopes that they're going to be trading the same people, be trading some of the other products over at ARK as well, and you get them dragged in across the ecosystem. So you can see how this could be beneficial. But I've got to say, I mean, if you look at what crypto has delivered to the industry, a lot of fintech players to date, it was that volume. And when we saw a fade around interest in crypto, that was when times got tougher for some of the crypto players, some of the fintech players that had added crypto to their ecosystem. So no doubt uh, this will be viewed, though, as an extra source of revenue. Just one very brief one. Does this mean actually that a lot of the unregulated players trying to send products, sell products to clients out there, they're toast? Uh, Potentially, right. Potentially. Because, you know, you've now got these leviathans in some cases offering a regulated ETF product. Does this take out one of my biggest complaints about the industry is that it's like the Wild West? Keep in mind, it is only one cryptocurrency here that we're talking about. It is just Bitcoin. And that's been one of the big points of the regulators, which we should get into. We're not talking about the others just yet. As the US SEC has approved rule changes to allow the creation of Bitcoin ETFs with the first funds to begin trading today, later today, after months of legal wrangling and speculation. Crypto advocates say the approvals will boost Bitcoin trading volumes by attracting fresh institutions institutional and retail investment. Bitcoin prices moved slightly higher on the news, while Ether surged with the SEC due to make a decision on Ether ETFs in May. Thomas Stord is the president and CEO of ARK Invest, which had its application approved. He told CNBC the funds will make it easier for investors to trade crypto. The entire initiative behind bringing an ETF Uh, for Bitcoin to get that exposure was to remove any last possible friction and pain points that investors may have had, whether that was custody, whether that was the ability to access that within uh, a garden that had gatekeepers and analysts, uh, whether that was just simply those who needed regulatory. And we all know that cost is always a friction point. It's always a pain point. It's always a deterrent. You know, ARK is bringing its, uh, ARK and 21 shares, our partner is bringing its ETF to market at uh, 21 basis points and waiving fees for the first six months or a billion dollars. And and the reality behind that is that, yes, customers have won from the increased competition. For most, we think this is going to be far cheaper than having access to directly trade crypto. Let's get out to Arjun. He's at an industry conference in Samarit still. Arjun, I'm sure that this is the big chatter across the building, the approval of this ETF. 
Absolutely. Everyone was on tenterhooks yesterday after that full start uh, from the SEC after the compromised X account. But no doubt there are going to be some sore heads this morning when the attendees arrive here uh, at the conference venue. They were probably celebrating last night, night champagne uh, popping, no doubt. The SEC has approved 11 applications from uh, companies from BlackRock through to ARK Invest, of course. And this is a huge deal for the industry. Everyone I spoke to yesterday was just talking about the ETFs, overhearing conversations. It was all about waiting for this ETF approval, which we got last night here uh, in Switzerland. And so it was uh, something that the industry is focused on. And they're excited because of this idea that new investors may come to the market. Those who perhaps would have never even dabbled in crypto before, large institutional investors. And the theory is uh, this could help support the price over uh, the, at least the medium to long term uh, as well. Investors are expecting about 50 to 100 billion dollars of inflows into the these ETFs over the first year. Let's see how, of course, how that demand goes at this point as well. But the price action, I thought, was fascinating. We saw Bitcoin initially dip on the approval and then sort of stabilize. And that was, I think, to be expected. We saw a more than 150% rally for Bitcoin last year, largely underpinned by anticipation that the SEC would approve an ETF this year. And so, this was very much priced in, but Ether, that was the fascinating one. About a 10% jump very shortly after the SEC approved the Bitcoin ETF. And that is now because investors are turning their attention to potential other cryptocurrencies that could get ETF approval. So that was one fascinating part of this story. There's a decision expected in May around an Ether ETF. But let's just read in to what the SEC and Gary Gensler had to say in a statement. Has the SEC U-turn? Is the SEC all of a sudden pro-crypto? Definitely not. Gary Gensler's statement was fascinating. He said it should in no way signal, he's talking about the Bitcoin ETF approval here, that the commission's willingness to approve listing standards for crypto asset securities. He reinforced the fact that the commission still thinks that most cryptocurrencies are securities and therefore subject to securities laws. And he reiterated that Bitcoin is speculative and could be used for illicit activities. And lastly, he said, while we approve the listing and trading of certain and spot Bitcoin ETP shares today, we did not improve or endorse Bitcoin. So those looking now towards the Ether potential ETF, perhaps uh, Gary Gensler, they're trying to pour some cold water over speculation that the SEC may greenlight a bunch of ETF applications uh, for Ether there, guys. Uh, just before I, I give it back to you, I want to let you know we'll be talking a lot more about this today with some fascinating guests, starting off with Bill Tai, the chairman of Acti at 830CT, Anthony Scaramucci, the founder of Skybridge Capital uh, at 930CT, then Christopher Giancarlo, who was the former uh, head of the CFTC in the US at 1015 CET. For now, guys, back to you. Arjun, can I just pick up on pricing and what lies ahead now? Because 2023 was such a stunning year. But in the context where other big tech names are running too, we've seen this connection between the tech universe and cryptocurrencies that they can bounce in tandem. This year looks a little bit more challenging given the escalation, the sort of multiples we're seeing in the tech universe. What does this mean for Bitcoin? Because we know that there's a halving coming as well. Is it possible that we could have another monster year for crypto or is it going to be much more challenging because of the dy dy dynamics where we have seen that escalation? So I think one of the things we saw last year was a slight decorrelation between how crypto trades in the Nasdaq. Yes, the Nasdaq did very well, but crypto sort of just had an absolute giant rally 
uh, last year. And I think now we're at a point in the cycle where you might see further decorrelation between tech stocks and the way Bitcoin trade. You mentioned the halving there. This is a pretty key moment now that the ETF is out the way. The industry is looking towards the Bitcoin halving, an event that happens every four years that's in Bitcoin's technical code. And this is where the rewards given to miners are slashed in half. This reduces supply of Bitcoin onto the market. And in previous cycles, halving has preceded a Bitcoin bull run to new all-time highs. Now, I've spent the last few weeks speaking to people inside, but also outside of the crypto industry. And I'm finding it very difficult to find anyone who's bearish right now on Bitcoin. Um, published a piece last week uh, talking about some of the price calls starting at about $60,000 all the way up to $500,000. That's probably unlikely, but there's certainly a feeling that Bitcoin will definitely hit a new all-time high this year. That was uh, what I heard from participants yesterday, uh, and then they're looking forward to 2025 to see where it goes next. But there is a lot of bullishness now because of the two factors, the ETF approval now, and then, of course, the halving, which, if you look at historical cycles, uh, has often seen Bitcoin hit new highs. Of course, I'd caveat that by saying Bitcoin has never been in this kind of macroeconomic environment with inflation this high, with interest rates at this point as well. So it'd be interesting to see if history does repeat itself. Arjun, terrific coverage. Nobody does it better. Thank you for the shot too today. I love that Alpine shot. He's really brought it to us today, hasn't he? Nice and cozy. me involved in your... Uh... Your, your lack of appreciation for his indoor shot yesterday and then you're eulogising over the well, shot today. Credit where it's due. This is absolutely beautiful. Yeah, you're just trying to get back at his good books before you see him in Davos. Well, I do like being in Arjun's good books. <laughs> Arabile. Well, Karen, coming up on the show, Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun tells CNBC in an exclusive interview the company must remedy serious mistakes. We'll bring you that interview a little bit later on in this hour, though. But also later on, We'll take a deep dive into UK retailers and numbers coming out of Tesco, M&S, as well as ASOS are all on deck today. And we'll be live from the Crypto Finance Conference, of course, in St. Moritz, as you've seen, for more reaction on the SEC's decision to pave the way for spot Bitcoin ETFs. Arjun will be speaking to guests throughout the morning, including Skybridge founder Anthony Scaramucci. That's coming up at 9.30 CET. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Tech stocks leading the markets higher again yesterday. You can see the Nasdaq out in front versus the other major indices. Three quarters of a percent bounce. What we're now seeing over the course of the trading week 
advancement. We've got gains on the Nasdaq to the tune of 3%, so not a bad trading period thanks to some of the big semiconductor stocks earlier this week, biotech names that have been bouncing as well. And if you take a, a tally of the, the FANG stocks for the trading week, up more than 4%. So those big names on the tech world have actually been carrying the market forward too. And what we've got in terms of the performance elsewhere, for instance, compare and contrast that to the banks this week. And don't forget, banks will start reporting this week. It has been a flat trading week for the banks. They're very concentrated around the tech world, communication services and the tech players themselves. Uh, in terms of what we're getting later on today, it's going to be all about the CPI, the Consumer Inflation Report, and whether that does move Treasury markets. If we see any movement to the downside, Again, the market will be looking at the Nasdaq and uh, those tech stocks for a further bounce. But the Treasury market, as we get going this morning, let's just take stock of what we've got. Uh, still very much in the same range, around that 4% handle. At the short end, we're now 435 to WTI and Brent, uh, somewhat of a journey this week, thanks to the Saudis cutting prices for customers. We, of course, still have events playing out in the Red Sea around the Houthi rebels and just what retaliation and what response we could see from Western allies to try and protect shipping lanes. WTI and Brent both gliding higher this morning with 71.80 odd on WTI and we're above 77 on Brent, both marching up by six tenths plus. To the Asian markets and its Japanese stocks that have been very much in focus this week. Again, very strong gains uh, through 34,000 points and now through 35,000 points. So continues to take out some psychological levels as we return to the highest level since the 1990s, uh, 1994 Tokyo stocks. 1.7 odd percent to the upside. Again, it's that concentration of tech names that we're seeing in the States just spilling across to some of the big tech plays out of Tokyo that's been propelling the market forward. But uh, you do have a bounce across on Hong Kong stocks today, showing some appetite to 370 plus points to the upside versus more modest levels on Chinese and Australian stocks. Steve. Um, I've just been getting some great insight on U.S. politics. I'll come to that in a few moments' time. A December's U.S. CPI print is expected to point to a modest acceleration of headline inflation, rising from 3.1% in November to 3.2% on the year. But core inflation is seen coming down slightly to 3.8%. Let me just remind you, ladies and gentlemen, 3.8% is nearly double the 2% target. Ergo, the New York Fed President John Williams has said it is too soon to make a call on rate cuts, insisting the Fed is still some way away from bringing inflation to its 2% target. Mr Williams said he expects the Fed to maintain a restrictive policy stance for some time and that any cut in rates would be justified only when inflation is seen falling back down to the aforementioned target on a sustained basis. Now, looking ahead to tomorrow's bank earnings, Williams said lenders' liquidity levels do not point to any need for the Fed to halt the reduction in its balance sheet. So a couple of very important points there. Neil Wilson is the co-CEO uh, at EJF Capital. Lovely to see you. Um, we will talk about politics in a few moments' time, but just, I mean, well, take your pick. The, the, the inflation excitement, I think we're all excited about what the CPI print is going to show, or, and bank earnings. There's a lot left in this week, isn't there? Sure. So first of all, thank you for having me on, Stephen, here. Um, in terms of uh, the CPI, as you stated at the outset, I do think that you know a headline could go up. That's fine because you know, energy prices have gone up a bit. But the key is the core is coming in. And, and I think that you're now seeing some degradation in rents. It's coming in a bit. And so I, I, would, ex I would point to two things. The personal consumption uh, expenditure index, which is the Fed's key rate, the PCE, that's down to 2.3%. In the last six months, it has declined at a greater rate 
than it has since 2020, you know, so pre-COVID. So that is a good sign. The second one is that the expectation of the consumers is that over the next three years, inflation will be 2.6%. So again, close, closing in on, and that's self-perpetuating, right? If the consumer believes that they're not gonna get the next pay raise, that they're gonna have to live within their means, then, then you start getting slowing down. So those are the kind of the indicators, I would say, that get you going down to the closer to the 2%. What's the relevance for markets today? I was just reading one report saying, look, I think we've all moved on from the inflation story. We're in a low growth, low inflation world now. But I don't think every market participant believes that. that. I was reading, I was reading some commentary. I know, this is uh, from a a Forex trader. And I think that is quite fascinating, isn't it? Forex trader who happens to have a very big position on (laughs) short, short dollar, long market. But the reality is there are still a lot of hawks in the market. And if you look over at the Fed, it was only one hawk that just rolled around recently and started to talk about the rate cutting potential now and taking the, any further rate hikes off the table. So it does tell you how dispersed the views are. So back to the point, what's the relevance of the data? What sort of market swings could we get? Well, you're, well, you're going to have a volatile day, uh, no matter what the print is. I mean, just look at October, where you had a, you had a pretty hawkish number. It was over 4%. Um, the market went down 4.8% in the S&P 500. So you could get some real volatility. I think you kind of look at the 4%. If you get a print like that on the, on the core um, or on the headline uh, in the core, then you're going to see some, you're going to see the market go down. The 3% level, as long as it's in the threes, everything will be kind of a little bit more muted. But again, if you start getting a print um, on the headline that's, that's below the 3.1%, then you're, you're going to see the market really rip. So I do think there could be some volatility based on the data today. Um, and I think uh, moving to the bank earnings, if, if, that, if that makes sense, um, tomorrow you start getting the earnings season kickoff with J.P. Morgan and Bank of America, Wells Fargo. Um, I think in the fourth quarter with rates coming down on like the 10-year, the five-year, the seven-year, which is really what, what affects banks, you're gonna, you always see the movement in banks on their lending levels coming in, the top line, and so earnings will be weaker in the fourth quarter. Uh, the banks that will do better will be like the J.P. Morgans and the and 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 the in the cities and the Morgan Stanleys, where ultimately they have a more diversified business. They're not just a lending and deposits are still high uh, relative to uh, you know, to history. So that so that that's kind of the way I would bifurcate the market in terms of the banks. Are the banks to buy at this stage? I mean, if you look at the trading pattern over the course of this week, they've just flatlined. There's been real no appetite for the, the ETF. So do you think we are going to see an entry point again for the banks? Um, I think it needs to come in a bit more before you would have that. I mean, there are buys out there on J.P. Morgan, which, again, best run bank in America, you could argue, in the world. But here's one of the kind of the lingering f- effects, and that is that the Basel III endgame has not come into play yet. Um, and that's still being debated. And, and, and in my experience, when you see in Washington, D.C., lobbyists uh, going left and right, um, and, and they're being hired by the big banks to basically say, hey, these new capital requirements that are estimated to be you know, 10 to 30% increase in capital requirements, which has a big impact on earnings, um, that hasn't been resolved yet. But the more you see lobbyists being hired and you see congressmen talking about it, that mean, or congressperson saying, talking about it, what that means is ultimately you're going to have new capital requirements and they're going to be worse for the big banks. So that would be the one thing I would caution you on the big banks as opposed to the, the smaller banks. Um, I'm trying to hold back starting my huge read-in on the U.S. presidential elections until, it, until I need to because there's so many other things <laughs> going on. But, but I, I can't help noting, as you did with me pre, um, coming on for this segment, that Chris Christie's dropped out. Uh, and I don't know if he's done it because he's, he's a no-hoper or he's done it because he doesn't want to give Trump 
uh, a, a glide path in Iowa, which is one of the, you know, the first primaries as well. By him dropping out, it gives one of the other candidates a chance to build up a little bit more momentum. Is that the case as you see it? Absolutely. And I, I think that um, Chris Christie dropping out, I think, is really designed to do the most damage to Trump. His voters will cut on, by estimates about two thirds to Nikki not Haley. Trump voters are they? By, by definition, yeah. They're by, Republicans, by, but they don't like Trump. Right, exactly. Yeah. They are the anti-Trump ETF, as it were. <laughs> so, so the two thirds or so will will uh, will will break to Nikki Haley, and that's super important. Less so in Iowa, which again is a caucus state, yep. which for non-Americans or even Americans, a caucus state is you have to go to a, a church or a school and sit there for six hours and, and eventually yeah. hear all these speeches, then vote. You have to be very, you know, pretty, pretty <laughs> fired up and yeah, dedicated yeah, yeah. is the right word. Uh, New Hampshire is a regular primary, but it's an open primary. It's yeah, open. You do not have to be a registered Republican. You can be so independents tend to vote in the Republican primary. Um, when is New Hampshire? Um, that's that is the fifteenth. Of March? No, no, January. Of These Jan- are both Jan- January. So, the, so New Hampshire. So I'm sorry, the 15th and the, I believe the 19th. So it's so like five. So this is clear and present. Iowa and New Hampshire are in January. Here and now. So the the path to for Nikki Haley to have uh, a bit of momentum or someone else to take on Trump, it all happens in the next few days. Yeah, and she and she's a, she's drawing an inside straight slowly. Um, she is only seven points behind. Uh, in polls in New Hampshire. So 39% for Trump, again, below 40, which is kind of meaningful level, and she's 32, and that's before the impact of Christie. So she could draw an inside straight, and then the next primary after that is in South Carolina. Nikki Haley was governor there. That's her home state. That could be interesting. And then you get Super Tuesday. Let me just ask you one more silly question. There are a lot of Republicans who don't like Donald Trump, and there are a vast number of Republicans who do like Donald Trump, but all Republicans want to beat Democrats, regardless whether you like Trump or not. Is this about who can beat Biden rather than who we like most? Well, I think that's the way uh, Nikki Haley's been positioning it very intelligently. She debated Ron DeSantis last night, and she is, according to the Wall Street Journal, 17 points in a head-to-head with Biden ahead, whereas Trump is 4%. So DeSantis is even. So if you're a Republican pragmatist, you're going to lean towards Nikki Haley. Plus, she has the non-chaos kind of component to her, which we talked about a little bit, which is kind of important. America doesn't love, although maybe all evidence to the contrary, doesn't love chaos. Um, and I do think that in a general election, she would have a very easy time. Well, I, I said to you off camera, and I won't name the individual, but I spoke to a stunningly senior American businessman who I would have assumed was a Republican. I didn't ask him his politics, but actually uh, he said to me, he has much better engagement with the Biden administration because it's an effective government where he can go and talk to the right people at the right department, whereas he found it more difficult during the Trump administration. And this is a fact. This is what someone told me. And it is not my anecdote. It's not my editorial. And he said, it just whatever you think about the politics, he just found it very difficult to deal with the Trump administration because it was a degree more chaotic. And I think it could get worse in a second Trump administration, or it would get worse. Um, He's going to be surrounding himself with sycophants as opposed to you know, kind of experienced, uh, you know, uh, government folks who are, you know, can work with Wall Street, can work with government agencies, can work with uh, other countries. And it's at this point that I say that we are agnostic on this channel. We are not political. We're not pro-Republican. We're not pro-Democrat. We're just kind of basically very interested in what we hear from people like yourselves and people that you and I have been speaking to. So, Neil, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Neil Wilson, co-CEO at EJF Capital. Nice to see you, sir. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. 
For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.